morning. Back to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians will begin in chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. And then we will read through chapter 5, the remaining verses of chapter 5, and we will end with verse 1 of chapter 6. In some ways, I'm continuing some thoughts from last week, but in other ways, um, it's not really a, uh, a series per se. So if you weren't here last week, you're not missing out. Well, hopefully you missed out on something. Hopefully there was something of substance last week. But um, um, you're not going to be lost this morning. Unless, of course, you are. It's always in the cards, I guess. Paul is writing this uh, this letter, which if you read it in its... Um, I mean, really, if you pick out most any say most any, if, if you pick any random chapter out of this uh, book or this epistle and read just that chapter, you'll probably realize that it is a pretty heavy letter that he's writing to people that he holds dearly in his heart. But if you read it as a whole, if you start from uh, the beginning and read all the way on through the end, you'll find, wow, this is a, an extremely passionate letter and it is a um, it, it comes from a heart that has been hurt and it comes from a... Uh, it comes to a people who have also been hurting. And Paul uh, gets to this point in what we call chapter 5, and he, and he says this. He says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain.
Lindsay has what she calls a Zen approach to breakables. Um, anything in our house that uh, that is able to be broken, whether it is um, expensive or not, she always just assumes it to already be broken. You see, that way, when it breaks, she can look at the bright side. We've got some years of use out of it. Um, whether it's a... Uh, a vase that, that one of the kids knocks over, which we don't have many of those lying around anymore. I don't know that we have any of those just lying around anymore. Uh, they normally stay locked up in a cabinet until we get flowers to put in them. And then they get taken out and put up somewhere high so the kids hopefully won't reach them. But if it's a, break, uh, a, a vase that breaks, she's able to say, hey, we got a year and a half of use out of this wonderful vase that we liked. If it's a toy that belonged to one of the kids hey, look on the bright side. You got to use it for three months. So she, she views everything in the house as already being destroyed so that when it is destroyed, it's not that big of a deal. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians earlier in chapter 4, mentioned what, uh, what we looked at just in passing last week, mentioned that we have a great treasure from God in His grace and in His life that has been extended to us. And we house that treasure in our very selves, which He calls earthen vessels or jars of clay. The interesting thing about the, 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 the image that Paul injects into our minds in this idea of jars being made of clay is that they're very fragile. Uh, anytime I see that word fragile, my mind races back to uh, the countless times on Christmas Day I've watched the Christmas story. Fragile! can't remember if he says it must be French. I think he says it must be French, which is really weird that he pronounced it fragile then. Um, but um, Paul says that in these fragile vessels that are ourselves. God has placed a great treasure. And then he goes through that passage where he says, you know, we're struck down but not destroyed. We're persecuted but we're not abandoned. We looked at that just briefly last week. But Paul recognizes that in our lives, which are fragile, which are deeply breakable, and in many cases are very broken, God has put the treasure of His grace and life. Paul, when he begins this passage, he says, look, Corinthians, I'm not, we're not going to, he uses we because he mentions specifically those uh, who are with him in his company and those who are, um, those who are helping in writing this, this epistle and even those who are taking it to them. Um, he says, look, we're not here to commend ourselves again to you. We're not, we're not trying to recommend ourselves to you. We're not here to boast of ourselves. We're not here to, uh, to try to offer to you a, a beautiful resume of how qualified and gifted we are. He says, uh, he, he's actually bringing up in, in, uh, in very subtle kind of under... Uh, under uh, under the radar ways early on in this letter, what he will later get right down to, and that is that there have been these people that whether they praise themselves as 
called super apostles, or whether Paul used that term kind of in, uh, uh, in jocularity, kind of mocking them. Uh, you find in this letter, Paul gets awfully snarky and sarcastic, which just makes me love it. Um, he, uh, it, most of us don't like it when people get sarcastic with us, but we get a kick out of it when they're getting sarcastic with other people. It's amusing. Uh, but Paul refers to these people as super apostles, uh, a, a term of endearment about these people that have come to the Corinthians and they have praised themselves as being people that, uh, that God has used mightily and people that, that God has put His pedigree upon. And they look down upon Paul and they see Paul in Paul this, this humble one and this one who maybe can't speak all that well and maybe doesn't have all that charisma in front of others. And they pride themselves and they boast of themselves and they lift themselves up. And Paul says, look, Corinthians, you know us. And we're not coming back to you to try to offer to you some glorious and grand resume about what God's done in our lives and through our ministry. Um, he will then, later on as he gets even more sarcastic, and uh, he, he kind of juxtaposes this self-deprecation uh, but then also this self-boasting. He's, it, it, at one point he says, fine, you want us to boast? Well, you know, we're not going to talk about this list of things. And he talks about all the things that he's endured for Christ and all the things that Christ has done through him. And he does it in a very kind of sarcastic way. He says, I'm not boasting of myself, though I could. And he goes running down a list of things that, that clearly uh, uh, puts him pretty high up on, uh, on, um, on the radar uh, or on the scale of God's use in his life. But when he approaches chapter 6, or what we call chapter 6, he, um, he brings back up this idea of commending himself. And I want to look at that passage just in, in, for a moment here. It's kind of small up here, but I wanted to kind of get it all up here together. He says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. In fact, he says uh, earlier, he says, look, we don't, we don't recognize anything great in us. In fact, we recognize something great in God. And he says, we consider ourselves your servants or your slaves. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. By purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. It's neat to see this in Greek because you've got all of these prepositions and all of these uh, conjunctions just piled on top of each other. It takes you, your mind back to chapter 4 when he said, you know, crushed down but not destroyed, persecuted, not abandoned. Um, where was I? Uh, as deceivers and yet true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As chastened and yet not killed. As sorrowful, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you and our heart is wide open. Paul is, um, is extremely passionate in his appeal to the Corinthians. He, he has um, 
he has taken very personally his ministry among them and what others have said about his ministry and how others have, um, in Paul's mind, tried to deprive the Corinthians of God's grace by dismissing the work that God has done through Paul for them. When we approach this passage that we've read together in chapter 5 and then ending at verse 6, 1, we approach yet again a Paul who is very sincere and a Paul who is very passionate, a Paul who is very broken, and a Paul who, as I mentioned last week, is very graphic in, his, um, in the images he uses. Um, and I want to look, in considering this idea of the ministry of reconciliation that Paul mentions to the Corinthians, I want to look at just a few thoughts uh, based upon this passage and based upon um, the book as a whole. The first thing I want to look at with you is, is a very, uh, very simple, direct statement. Redemption is bloody business. When you look at the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, you read through the book of Leviticus, it's one of the bloodiest, most graphic uh, books that you could probably get your hands on. Um, I mean, reading through Leviticus is almost like watching the first few minutes of Saving Private Ryan. It's like, wow, this is relentless. And it's, it's going through the sacrificial system and this, the... Uh, uh, the religious worship of, of the Hebrew people is as the tabernacle is being established and as, as the altars are being built and set up and as uh, the sacrifices are being laid out for them and you read of, of bulls and goats being sacrificed, you read of how the, the lambs are to be sacrificed, you read of you know, those who are poor among them being able to offer up turtle doves and, and instead of others, you read of all sorts of sacrifices. And the one thing that you can't miss is this fact that redemption is bloody business. There's nothing pretty about it. I, I, um, on the one hand, I imagine the tabernacle as being a place of gorgeous beauty, a place of, of overwhelming awe. I can't, it, it would have been amazing to be a, um, a, a Hebrew man and to be walking up to the tabernacle and to see all of the, all of the detail, all of the ornateness, the curtains, uh, the gold, all of that, and yet the one thing that you probably could not escape is the constant smell of blood. And not just blood, but burning fat. Because redemption is bloody business. Remember Adam and Eve, after the fall, we, we have these you know, cute little images. In fact, whenever I try to pull up some... Uh, uh, some coloring pages for for uh, for the the kids bulletin, the youth bulletin here on Sundays. If if it uh, has to do with the Garden of Eden, you, you normally have this kind of nice, pretty picture with all these lovely trees and flowers, and you know, uh, uh, you have normally kind of a silly looking snake running around on the ground. And here come Adam and Eve, and they're kind of strutting out of the. Uh, out of the garden and there's the angel behind them and they're wearing these you know clothes and normally their faces are kind of sorrowful but everything else just looks happy and hunky-dory the fact is god had sacrificed animals for those clothing 
animals that Adam had just named. Adam uh, and Eve tried to just pull some fig leaves together and create just a, you know, a real quick fix, a, a, a garment that could cover themselves because they had recognized their nudity. And, and God says, that's not enough. And He provided for them a covering, but that covering came at the loss of life. Redemption is bloody business. Paul says here in chapter 5, verse 21, that verse that we don't like, and that verse that when we sing of it, as we did just earlier, or as we sing Jesus Messiah, we normally squirm because we think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul's not saying this. Okay, but hear him out. It says, For he that is God made him that is Christ the Son. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It seems that Paul is speaking in metaphor, but what Paul says is graphically obvious. That Christ, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of the Father, was offered up to us in our behalf. One who knew no sin, one who was pure and spotless, one who was utterly blameless, was given to be sin for us. He was offered up as a sin offering. He was as that lamb in the Hebrew tabernacle who bore His neck for the sins of the people. Having done nothing wrong, having been pure and spotless, He was offered to us to be made bloody for our redemption. We sing as we did just a moment ago of how deep the Father's love for us and we come to that line, the Father turns His face away and as good theologians, as good Trinitarian theologians, we scream, there's no way God turned His face away from His Son. There's no way God turned His back on His Son, abandoned His Son because you know, we, we like to think that God can't be in the presence of evil and we like to think that God can't look upon evil. What do we do then with in Job when the sons of God come before the Father and Satan himself is numbered among them and he comes, tells the Father, let's, uh, let's check the, uh, the stamina of this buddy Job of yours. Was God not present in the tabernacle? After all, that's where sinful Hebrew people brought their sacrifice and laid their sins upon that sacrifice and, 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 and gave that sacrifice to God in their behalf. Was God not in the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur, um, which is coming up. Not far from now, just a few weeks. Was God not in the tabernacle when Aaron was to lay his hands upon the goat, the scapegoat? That's where we get that term, scapegoat. Laid his hands upon that goat 
And on the Day of Atonement was placing all the sins of the Hebrew people on it and then was to let it out of the tabernacle and let it leave Jerusalem and let that, let that goat leave the camp. When we read and we sing specifically how deep the Father's love for us because I don't, I don't think... God the Father did turn His back on His Son. But when we read that or sing that line, I think it's a, a beautiful image. I think it's a, a, a true and correct and biblical image because of, what, because of what it's saying, not because of what it's not saying. It says specifically, how great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. The father doesn't turn his back on his son because he wants nothing to do with him. The father is hurt. The father is cut to the core. His very own eternal word. The chosen one of heaven is rejected by men, is beaten, is mocked, is ridiculed, pours out his life's blood for fallen men. It's not in abandonment that the Father turns His face. It's knowing the weight of our sin. It's in knowing the pain that redemption requires. Because redemption is bloody business. In the cross of Christ, we behold the God who weeps. We behold the God who dies. And we behold the God who redeems. Paul says that he... Gave his life for us so that we might then live for him. And in that, in that vein of thought, he says he has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given to us the word of reconciliation. Our minds, as we consider this second thought of Paul's, that you are a vessel of God's grace, our minds ought to race back to what Paul said about the type of vessel we are. We are earthen vessels. We are jars of clay. We are fragile. We are breakable. We have chips all over us. We have cracks. We are porous. And yet... We are vessels of God's grace. The treasures of divine grace, the treasures of God's life lives within us. And all of our brokenness, and all of our breakability, and all of our fragility, we are yet vessels of God's grace because He's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. He has entrusted to us the word of reconciliation. We cannot escape in either the Old Testament 
prefacing it, and then in the New Testament declaring it, we are a kingdom of priests. And what does a priest do? He intercedes between God and man. He takes man's hurt, he takes man's brokenness, he takes man's sacrifice, and he offers it up to God in intercession. And as vessels of God's grace, we ourselves are set up as a kingdom of priests. As Peter and others tell us in the New Testament. Paul says here that we have received the ministry of reconciliation, the responsibility really, the work of reconciliation. He says He's given to us the word of reconciliation. He's committed that to us. He's entrusted it to us. He's placed it upon us to be people who reconcile, to be people who intercede, to be people who plead for others, as Paul does here to the Corinthians, to be reconciled to God, but people who put themselves out there as vessels of God's grace to help in that reconciliation. Paul, as, as I mentioned last week, was one who knew suffering. He was acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with, with suffering. Uh, for Paul, the gospel was never safe. There's nothing safe about redemption. There's nothing safe about, about being a vessel of God's grace either. Paul recognizes in his own person the suffering that comes with the gospel and the suffering that comes not just at the hands of physical pains and disappointments, but emotional and relational ones as well. Paul's writing himself as a vessel of God's grace to people who have shared and hurt with Paul, people who have hurt him deeply, and people who he knows he has brought pain to in trying to call them back to a right relationship. And Paul declares here, as he does elsewhere in this letter, that we as vessels of God's grace have a lot to do with what's going on in the lives of others. In fact, um, earlier in his epistle, he mentioned that, um, that he had caused them pain so as to bring healing to them. And he says that death has been working in me so that life can be at work in you. And he says that as that life works and as that reconciliation takes place, as that restoration takes place, many of them will share in thanksgiving and many will share in the worship. And the way he uses language all throughout this epistle, you see that Paul is bearing their hurts and also celebrating in their joys and they doing likewise. And he speaks of the whole congregation of God's people, even people in Jerusalem that he'll mention later as he calls them to take up an offering and to, uh, to, to be, be firm on their commitments to one another, to, um, uh, to, to help the hurting and poor Jews of uh, Jewish Christians of, um, of Jerusalem. He, he speaks of the whole body as bearing one another's hurts and as being vessels and channels of God's grace to one another. But even to the world, we are vessels of God's grace. 
there's no coincidence in the fact that God calls us to be light of the world and to be salt of the earth. There's no coincidence in the fact that He calls us the body of Christ. There's no coincidence in the fact that He leaves us in a world that is filled with darkness, in a world that is filled with brokenness, in a world that is filled with irreconciliation. He leaves us and He compels us to be ministers, to be word bearers, to be vessels of His grace. Because quite frankly, eternity hangs in the balance. What I mean by that is, that which is of eternal worth is truly in a precarious spot. That's the image that Paul is giving to us when he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Again, he is not just trying to use some pretty image. He's not trying to give us the idea of some glamorous looking stone pot that has gold piled up in it. He's giving us this idea of a, of a breakable, fragile, chipped up, scarred vessel. Earthenware. And that treasure of God's grace that is in us and that is through us to be offered to others is in a precarious spot in the sense that we ourselves are those earthen vessels. That redemption is a bloody business. When Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand and He promised His Holy Spirit to come at Pentecost... He was leaving the salvation of the world in the hands of eleven bumbling, foolish men. One just days prior had denied Jesus three times, swearing about it. Not putting his hand on a Bible and lifting his other hand, but cursing a girl. I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. Quit bringing it up. And Jesus tells His disciples, it's yours. Now He, of course, promised them He would not leave them as orphans. He would not abandon them. He would return to them through His Holy Spirit. But even still, that reminds us of the fact that that treasure, the Holy Spirit of God's grace in us, is housed within earthen vessels people who have denied Him. People who have run scared. People who have said, their salvation is not worth that to me. So Paul says, we then as workers together with Him, as co-laborers. This idea of synergism, synergy. Working together. Salvation is not 
all on God's part without anything to do with us. You can't make sense of this passage thinking that. But us co-laboring with Him, we then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Because eternity hangs in the balance. God has put the hope and the potential of your neighbor's salvation upon your shoulders. As I mentioned last week, that coworker of yours will never know Jesus unless he knows him through you. Sure, you could say, wow, he could know him from somebody else. Okay, what if that person doesn't? Oh, he's got family and friends closer than I am. What if they don't care? The fact is, the treasure of God's grace in this ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to earthen vessels. And on the back of your communication cards, I've left last week's responses on there because as a uh, Martin Luther said, I keep preaching the gospel to you because you walk in each Sunday as people who don't believe the gospel. Um, so I know some of you probably need to reconsider these commitments. Reconsider these responses. But also, perhaps there were one or two of them that you weren't able to do last week. And I want you to reconsider this morning, would you with me pray for the Holy Spirit to transform you? Um, we will always be earthen vessels. But that does not mean that we will always be incapable of being redeemed and fixed and healed. Perhaps you know you've got cracks in your vessel. Perhaps you know you've got chips in places that life has wounded you or marked you. Perhaps you know that even of your own choosing and of your own volition, you have brought wounds upon yourself. I wonder if you would pray for the Spirit to transform you so that you can be the man or woman He wants you to be, but so that also others then through you might come to know Him. And very practically, I want to ask you to visit with someone this week. I think someone was making a joke with me that they wanted to get together with me and they, they thought that might count as their visit with someone this week. Um, um, 
especially, you know, we've got uh, the, the big cookout coming up this, this next week. It might be a good opportunity for you to just spend some time with someone and let them know, um, let them know about the, uh, the cookout and tell them, hey, look, we'd love for you to join us for it. But I wonder if you would take some time this week and just spend, spend a little bit of that time with, with someone who is in need of, um, of a friend, in need of God's grace in their lives. And then lastly, I wonder if you will resolve yourself to become a vessel of God's redeeming grace. To be a vessel, a minister of reconciliation. Paul says that he has entrusted to us ministry of reconciliation. He has, he has, uh, uh, he has put within us the word of reconciliation. I wonder if you would say, earthen vessel though I might be, I will be a vessel of God's redeeming grace. I will be used of Him for the sake of others. As we consider these responses, I want you to pray with me for a moment.